Hello and welcome to episode 80 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, I see you're in one of your many Mountain Goats t-shirts. Did you know that John Darnielle plays Magic? What? I think that's little known fast. What? I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I tried to get him on an interview and was politely declined. Oh, he declined? Oh, you got a response. Oh, yeah. I, I got a response very quickly. That's impressive. So is his Twitter manager said, nah. Basically. Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harburger. Now I'm just going to have to go try to get a different indie rock star to be on here. Who else do we think plays Magic? Do you think that uh, Fabrizio from The Strokes maybe plays Magic? Or who who else? What other indie rock stars do we think? Father John Misty maybe plays. Father John Misty. Wow. <laughs> well, here's a question. Who do you think plays EDH? And who do you think plays like Limited and then Pioneer and Modern? What's the name of the guy from Of Montreal? He probably he probably does some magic. Scoot. Scoot McNair. You mean the guy from Halt and Catch Fire? <laughs> I was just trying to think of a Canadian sounding name. Of Montreal is not in fact from Montreal. What? Yeah, they're from Athens, Georgia, I think, if I remember right. So is R.E.M. Mm-hmm. So is my mother. Does she know R.E.M.? Is that the name of a band? Yeah, my mo- no, my mom is from Athens, Georgia. It's a cool town. Check it out if you've ever been there. Mm. Never been there. On this week's episode, we're throwing all the formalities out the window, and all we're doing is talking about decks. There's no breakdown. There's no wind down. It's nothing but net decks. Today, 60-card main boards, 15-card sideboards. Presumably, there were maybe boards. We don't have that data in front of us. Like I want to say two things. One is I do not officially endorse this podcast format, and two... I also do not, do not officially endorse the use of the term main board. <laughs> the, the, dive down, the dive down official stance is main deck and sideboard. Stan, please check the style guide next time before you. Yeah. I just have one uh, question. How big are your maybe boards? Like 37 cards. So realistically, for the deck I was working on today, it was like 12 to 15 cards I was looking at. Okay, then. That's settled. First, everyone's favorite part of the show, it's housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Network, Benjamin S. and Brandon G. We have a network now? That's Not just a nation? Yeah. We've gone virtual. Sweet. You know, like in, you know, like in Lawnmower Man, when all of a sudden the people were in the computers? That's, that's the era we live in now. You guys remember Lawnmower Man? <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately. It's very good. Also, big ups to Craig M. for going up a tier, the millman himself. Thanks, Craig. As Dan mentioned, some of our newest patrons, we are supported by you all. Um, uh, the citizens of the Dive Down Nation are members of our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. We have been sending out play mats to people who have qualified for those. They are sick. Dave designed those. He also designed some a new set of pins that I just received last week. Uh, we have our tokens. You're going to want some of these pins. We have Pioneer pins now. We didn't used to have Pioneer ones. We we only had Modern. Now we got a good one about Heliod and Friends. We got a good one about Inverter. So beat the bands. Get these pins. Limited edition yeah. runs. 
Oh, no. Did we make another pin for a band deck? Yeah. We also have a Tron pin now, which I am very happy about. First, we had the Faithless Looting pin. Now we have Inverter pins. Eventually, our band pins are going to have a little bit of a collector's price tag. I mean, we have Anamorphos pins. People have talked about that card being too good. So if you want to see the various options, uh, the various benefits that can come to you for joining our Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash the dive down. We appreciate all of your all support. The dive down is also supported in part by manatraders.com. Uh, manatraders.com is the place that we rent decks to play modern and pioneer on magic online. Uh, additionally, you could even play standard if you wanted to with them or popper or other things. Um, if you want to check out manatraders.com, you can go there and enter the code, the dive down all one word, lowercase to get 15% off of your first three months of membership. We thank you very much and thank manatraders.com. I gotta say, I love the no mana hours thing. I love it. I had like, I had a deck all weekend and I just wasn't stressed out about it. I was just like, there's no countdown here. I just got these cards. Yeah, it's very nice. I still don't know if everybody has access to that to that thing, but I will say, having been subscribed for about 18 months now, it is a nice perk to have. All right, so there's no little buffer music. We're just going to jump right in. Man, the editor's going to love this. I have to place that music. Tanner, no break music. We're going borderless this week, like an extended art foil. I prefer the extended art non-foils, personally. Uh, yeah, me too. It's true. I don't want any foil cards ever. Those lightning bolts, those GP 2019 lightning bolts, still beautiful. It's leave, believe, heave, week on the dive down. And normally we just talk about like three-ish decks that we've each tried. But I guess this week we all got to try a number of decks. I played like 19 different decks. Shane played 20, Dave played 21. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about all of them. And we're just going to dive right in. Yeah, I mean... Just to remind people, what we're trying to do this week, two different things. Talk about decks that were affected by Corset 21. What cool new cards have made it into Modern and Pioneer? What changes are they making? What things should you be keeping an eye out on? The other thing is, for those of you who haven't listened to an episode like this before, Sleeve Believe Heave is our little thumbs up, thumbs down style ranking system where we kind of grade things on a three-point scale, essentially. Sleeve means... Uh, I'm going to play it or everybody's going to play it. It's an instant kind of staple of whatever format it is. That's sleeve. Believe is we think that it has possibility. Maybe it's an FNM deck. It's a deck that works, but maybe isn't as good as the rest of the format. And heave is, well, you can kind of figure that out. Get rid of it. We just wanted something that rhymed, okay? Yeah. And now we're stuck with it because it's been a year and a half. <laughs> so here we are. We usually, each one of us kind of went deep on one deck. And then we're going to take a little pause. And then after that, we're just going to talk about decks that maybe we didn't get to play with quite as deeply or things that we just saw that were interesting in prelim challenge and league results that are worth talking about. So first up is going to be Stan on the most hotly anticipated deck coming out of Core 21, I think. Stan? I played Red Black Goblins in Modern featuring conspicuous snoop is it conspicuous or conspicuous it's conspicuous, conspicuous. right Consp it's definitely not conspicuous <laughs> that's not a word yeah, it's not a word that's not yeah, it could be all right so i think it's worth mentioning that snoop won one of the modern challenges and 
Do you guys remember last week when I was like, hey, do you think uh, this deck can make it into the Modern Challenge Top 8? And here it was. It won one of them. And Stan and I both said yes, that we thought it would make it into a Top top 8 of the Challenge because people were so hyped on the combo. Yeah, and, you know, uh, as I'll get into more detail, I'm not sure the fact that it won the Modern Challenge is necessarily indicative of, like, some broken, unreasonable power level. I just think you had a lot of great players and great minds kind of jump at this strategy because it was, like, the hot new strategy that seemed very promising in the format. Uh, And then someone pulled it off. And there were two Modern Challenges over the weekend, and I think Snoop only made it into one top eight. Though I, I, I believe the other one had Snoop in the 32. So, the deck that won the challenge and the deck that I played, Red Black... You have to run red-black for two reasons. A, the combo requires red cards in Conspicuous Snoop and a black card, which is David Harbarger, Goblin Harbinger. Bogart Harbinger. Yeah. I'm going to call it Harbarger a lot. Okay, that's fine. That is where I believe my last name came from, so it's just a corruption of Harbinger. I like it. I like it too, yeah. We all deserve to have a, a magic card named after us. I, I also kind of want to point out one difference between my deck and the one from the Modern Challenge was the Modern Challenge version had like four Thoughtseize and an Inquisition of Kozilek and an Unearth in the main deck. I did not. I was basically kind of all in on goblins, though I was doing like Aether Vile stuff because I think you kind of have to and maybe want to. So let's talk about the combo for people who don't know. For a second can we just remind people how it works really quickly sure and, and the reason it's exciting is because it's a turn three combo and how it works is on turn one you play a land it has to tap for red it could be like auntie's hovel or blood crypt or black leaf cliffs could be red black turn two you play another land again it has to tap for red but it could be red black and you cast a conspicuous snoop which is red red for a 2-2 goblin rogue play with the top card of your library revealed you may cast goblin spells from the top of your library and as long as the top card of your library is a goblin card snoop has all activated abilities of that card yep so you have your turn two snoop then on turn three you play another land by now you need to have at least one black source because you cast bogart harbinger Tuna Black for a 2-1 Goblin Shaman. When Harburger comes into play, you may search your library for a Goblin card, put it on top, shuffle your library, put that card on top of it, and that's it. You use Harbinger to fetch up a Kiki Jiki Mirror Breaker. Everyone knows what that card does. Now with Snoop on the board, it has Kiki's ability. Snoop does not have haste, but it no longer has summoning sickness. You start making copies of Snoop. You make, let's say, 20 copies of Snoop. Your 20th untapped copy makes a copy of Harbinger, which you use to shuffle your library again and put a sling. I I like to put Sling Gang Lieutenant on top, which is three and a black for a goblin, um, which has this ability, sacrifice a goblin, target player loses one life, you gain one life. And at that point, you just sacrifice all of your Snoop tokens to the Sling Gang Lieutenant effect. There you go. That's it concise easy peasy well explained stan thank you i I think i mostly pronounced everything correctly too yes mostly we do have funny names (laughs) they're a strange creature type what is a goblin names are comedy gold right look the deck is good what what 
I'm going to talk about the deck, but kind of at the end of the day, what is there to say about the fact that this deck is kind of indisputably good? Turn three kill, especially in the face of no interaction. I wasn't surprised to see it do well and appear on a lot in MTGO leagues this this past week. Were you guys surprised? I was not. I think there's just a lot of infrastructure available for decks like this to work. If there is a good crit- critical amount of enablers, the Goblin package has a couple of different alternate game plans that you can play, whether it's Grumgully, which I talked about a little bit last week, or there's another one that um, has the ability to give things... Um, like a tap to deal three damage to a target. There's like a lightning goblin or something like that, (laughs) that people are running as another alternate game plan. So there's just a lot of pieces available that fit the tribal theme. And so I was not too surprised. And plus, you know, since it's creatures, it's powered up by Aether Vial. I'm sure you're going to get into all of this, but uh, a lot of pieces. Shane, were you surprised to see Goblin Snoop popular and do well? Taking first place is a little surprising. Honestly, like just coming out of the gates with a first place modern challenge win, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. You, you don't see that happen too often. So if I were to kind of draw a line in the sand, this might be a good opportunity to do that, especially in response to the deck's first place finish on Saturday. I do not think this deck is quote unquote too good. I don't think we're going to see it take down every modern challenge until something gets banned. I don't think this deck is going to lead to anything getting banned. When Neobrand first came out, like, last year or whenever, I think at that point we were like, this deck is crazy, something's going to get banned. We were wrong then. I may be wrong again now. I don't think this deck is outrageously good. I just think it is good, period. Uh And part of that is because I found that the modern version of this deck didn't really have a great aggro plan. It kind of just wants to win off the combo or other goblin synergies that don't necessarily feel like super aggressive plans. So like you have Mog War Marshal, which is the goblin with echo that leaves behind 1-1 tokens. You have Pashalik Mons, which can also make tokens, or you can sacrifice a goblin to make two tokens to it. And whenever Pashalik Mons or another goblin you control dies, you can deal one damage to any target. So you got like some synergies there. Sling Gang Lieutenant, uh, of course, even without... Goblin Snoop can like have some goblin synergies to ping opponents or creatures for damage. Likewise, one of the things that does contribute to this deck's power level are how is how consistently it can find its combo pieces. Mm-hmm. So you've got the four Harburgers, of course, which doesn't put a card in your hand, but it basically could guarantee that you draw the card, especially if you Aether Violet in right before your draw step or at the end of opponent's turn. Yeah, and of course, key in a key way, it puts it directly where Snoop wants it to be. Yeah, 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 of course. You know. Yeah, but like you also have uh, four goblin matrons, which actually actively fetches a goblin and puts it into your hand. Um, you also see goblin ringleader, which can potentially fill your hands with goblins when it enters the battlefield. You reveal the top four cards and put all goblins reveal all goblin cards reveal this way into your hand. So you start to see this deck running tarfire as well because you can actually dig up a tarfire using goblin matron, ringleader, or harbinger. Mm. Yeah, so I think this deck, I, I, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, but just to get it out of the way, this is an easy sleeve. If you're playing Moto, you kind of have to have a plan because it's got all the pieces to be a popular deck, I think in the near term especially. What's, what's the plan, Stan? Can you, how, do you, how do I stop this deck? Are you going to tell me? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. Um, sh- should I talk about disrupting this deck or should I maybe talk about... Uh... Yeah, let's talk about some of the other ins and outs of the deck before we talk about disrupting it. Yeah. 
so I, I guess one of my other conclusions before we get into like how to metagame against it, I kind of think this deck is good for modern. Maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. Okay. Why do you think that? Here's my opinion. This creature-based combo strategy with creatures that are very, very easy to kill, I think might push the metagame to be more interactive, a little bit more mid-rangey, which I have a hunch that a lot of players, especially modern players, consider that fun magic. You know, even when everyone was hating on Lurus, including some of us on the podcast, like we all kind of shrugged our shoulders and said like, yeah, the metagame kind of sucks, but we're still having fun playing like all these mid-range fests. Yep. And I think there's a little bit of that going on. And this one in particular is super vulnerable to like every removal spell, hand disruption, and it's like nightmare matchup is something like Junt, where if opponent casts a turn three Liliana, I felt like I could just scoop at that point unless by some miracle I could untap and win on the spot. Yeah, let me ask you a question really quick. Do you think that, and maybe Shane has some thoughts here too, do we think that this deck is that different than like Devoted Devastation, realistically? I mean, understanding that they have different cards, different colors, all those kind of things, it, they're still both heavy creature synergy, uh, creature combo decks that can go infinite on turn three. Now, Devastation doesn't have as much ability to uh, tutor up its cards, but still, I mean, it's got it's got a lot of ways to get their cards. It just maybe doesn't have as many as four creatures that do it for for them. So, so Stan, in, in looking at this deck, you know, we've we've all played devoted devastation style decks. I feel like this deck probably puts on a better beatdown backup plan than the devoted decks because those creatures are pretty anemic by their lonesome. But I see there's more inherent synergies here than just trying to put together uh, your Devoted Druid and Vizier combo or kind of the few sideboard cards you might bring in. This sort of has just a lot of goblin tribal synergies. Yeah, I think the fact that the goblin synergies exist here is a good and important call out in terms of the differences between those two decks because like Devoted Devastation isn't pinging off creatures with its like 1-1 extra goblin tokens. You know, Devastation, unless it is running Abzan for some reason. It doesn't get to do like turn one Thoughtseize. Um, it also doesn't even play Aether Vial. So it can be a little harder to like play around counter magic mm -hmm. um, and, and play its creatures at instant speed. Yeah. The main reason I, I brought that up too was because, you know, you, you were saying having this deck around might push the metagame towards being more interactive because yeah. it's another good creature combo deck. There already is a good creature combo deck in the meta, but if this one gets popular, maybe together the two of them can start to become enough of a meta share that people just have to concentrate on decks that have lightning bolt in them basically you know what i mean like it makes lightning bolt better basically yeah and it, that, that's exactly true and i also think that like the some of the flex slots in either deck are different because like where this can play Thoughtseize, that deck can play path to exile and and i think there's like some important differences there um you know this deck can't really achieve surprise kills i i guess neither of them can I could be forgetting something obvious about Devastation, but in both cases, like you need Snoop to stick around more often than not for at least a turn before it can combo off because it doesn't get haste if you put Kiki-Jiki on top. It doesn't have haste itself. So sometimes you see the combo coming from a mile away and you might have a turn to, to kill it. And that, I think, contributes to why this is actually a healthy deck. It's at a reasonable speed. Yes, it can kill on turn three, but that kill is a little bit delayed and it's often signaled. 
Yeah, and there's other weird ways to disrupt that too, right? Like you could thought scour an opponent who just put Kiki Jiki on top at the wrong time, or you can field of ruin them and they have to shuffle their deck. So there's there's other ways to kind of disrupt what's going on there in the middle of the whole thing. So Stan, I, I mean, a surprise kill, wouldn't that just be like Viling and Snoop when you have Kiki Jiki on top of your deck? Like end of turn Vile, Snoop, and then untap and win? But then you're drawing the Kiki Jiki. Oh, fiddlesticks. Yeah. Well, I guess you could do it. You could do it at the beginning of the turn. Then doesn't have haste. Oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah. So there is some like planning that goes into making this combo actually work. Once you get beyond the, I play Snoop turn two, I tutor up Kiki Jiki turn three, kind of perfect scenario. I will say, like, I got to live that dream more than one time. It, it is possible. The deck has a lot of consistency because of that. And uh, so you inceptioned it. You had dreams within dreams. Indeed, I did. Indeed, I did. So let's talk about the disruption, because Thought Scour was not on my list, but that's a definitely a clever one. I think when you think about playing a deck like this, any creature combo strategy, really, removal, disruption, interaction, and maybe even artifact hate are all kind of the name of the game here. I feel like basically all instant speed removal that is legal and modern at one or two mana is good against this deck. Even cast down is great here. Because you're not trying to kill Kiki Jiki. You just need to kill the Snoop. So you don't have to revolt Fatal Push, Bolt, you know, obvious. But like Lava Dart, kill Snoop if you don't mind sacrificing a mountain. Also, don't underestimate the power of killing the Goblin Harburgers either. They only have one toughness and like they're important to the combo on turn three. That like sometimes just killing the Harburger leaves the Goblin player with kind of like their hands and their pockets because okay you make a bunch of tap tokens and then you have nothing to do with them and then they're drawing kiki jiki the next turn right which is like thanks right i don't i don't want that card i i would even say that a brave and abrupt decay are maybe some of the best cards against this deck because destroying an aether vial can be very relevant and they can both destroy aether vials and the creatures you just love a braid stand you know that it kills creatures and artifacts I do wish I can go to the face. The best two mana card ever. It's Shatter <laughs> and and uh, Lightning Bolt-ish, Lightning Strike, and yeah. Maybe throw like Destroy Target Land on there. Why not? Yeah, you got yourself a Pillage. A little, a little stew going. Best red cards ever. Also, you know, maybe this isn't surprising. Maybe it's not intuitive immediately, but Plague Engineer is also effective, even though Snoop is a 2-2. Who would have thought? Because, well, here's the thing. Practically every other Goblin of Substance, including Harbinger, has one toughness. So if you land a Plague Engineer, sure, maybe Snoop survives, but then they have a really hard time maintaining a board. Yeah, this deck is full of X1s. Lots and lots of X1s. As I mentioned, because it's a combo deck, having hand disruption to either take out Snoops or Harburgers or even something like Goblin Matron to give the deck consistency is really good. But because this deck has so many redundant tutoring effects, this isn't the type of strategy that will fold to a single Thoughtseize. You kind of need to have that Thoughtseize backed up by some kind of removal. Maybe multiple hand disruption spells will be good, but don't expect to win just like off your one IOK. And then I started thinking about like the individual decks in the format or maybe some deck archetypes and how they might pair up against this. And that actually kind of contributed to my overall feeling that this deck is reasonable because, you know, control players, yes, they have a bunch of removal. Yeah, wrath effects are good. But like if you can play around Cavern of Souls or Aether Vile, Spell Snare could actually be perfectly reasonable at like dealing with those snoops at instant speed. I don't know. Dare to Dream, Jeskai Control, something with like 12 removal spells between Helix, Bolt, and Path. I don't think goblins can beat a deck with 12 removal spells. 
And even something like Electrolyze, which can kill a Snoop and then draw you a card, maybe draw you another removal spell, I could see that like potentially being effective if by chance Goblins takes over the format. You know, something like Etron. I feel like Chalice is actually kind of soft against the strategy because it has those Aether Vials because it has Cavern of Souls. But I don't think this deck can really profitably kill a Reality Smasher. And of course, Thought Not Seer really good about uh, taking combo pieces out of someone's hand. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, do you think that Etron, Etron's not going to race this deck typically, right? Like, what is this? Is this a combo deck with a creature based backup? Like, do you think this is always looking to do turn three, turn four style kills? Or is it looking to piece together an insurmountable go wide goblins board? I don't think it's that great at making an insurmountable go wide goblins board because you don't have a lot of like anthem or lord effects. And sometimes if you're like using your extra tokens or your extra harbingers or whatever, you know, your disposable goblins to like throw them at opponents, they're only dealing one damage. And philosophy of fire in practice, that's not a really good effective rate to like get your opponents dead. So I do think the version I played and kind of the version that we saw most popular uh, in modern over the weekend is mostly concerned about the combo. If it's lucky and like your opponent is doing absolutely nothing and you just happen to never find your combo, eventually you can beat down, but that's not like ideal here Con- compared to something like Winota, which we played last week. Like this deck doesn't have the three drop that makes tokens every turn and then just like scales as you make more tokens. Right. So when you miss the combo, the bailout is pretty tough because the bailout is you're still trying to combo, you mostly think. Yeah, I mean, ideally, yeah. Like the bailout is to find the combo eventually because you have all these redundant pieces to help dig up cards because your creature suite is not going to be particularly good at beating down your opponent. It's not that type of goblin deck. It's not 8-whack. Right. And also this deck is, you know, I'm looking through it now and it's like, it doesn't have any way to draw extra cards essentially. So if you get down in kind of a card advantage kind of game, I think you're probably in trouble. Did you run into that at all when you were playing? Whereas if someone two for one to you, you were just way behind or. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of my point with like just scooping to Liliana the veil. Like once, once your opponents can like remove creatures every turn, there's so little you can do unless you can win on the spot, you know, cause you have like a resilient draw or whatever. Um, you know, this deck does run sideboard blood moons right now. So if you're, whether you're on Etron or, or green Tron, look out for those. I don't think green Tron can, can beat this deck unless green Tron gets the perfect draw. And this gets a bad draw. Like this looks like a nightmare for Tron. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're just hard mulling for your, like interactive removal spells that you might have three of in the sideboard. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing where like Kiki Jiki in Splinter Twin kept Tron in check a little bit, right? Because it was very hard to compete with Splinter Twin when you were playing Green Tron. I was thinking about all the combo decks in the format, you know, Storm, Ad Nauseum, Devoted Devastation. Those matchups are just going to be drag races. Um, Devoted Devastation has some removal. Goblins has some removal. But like Storm and Adnaz, I don't think those strategies can really interact very well. Including Storm, like sure, sometimes they'll cast their remand at your spells, but not if you have Cavern of Souls or Aether Vial. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite decks of this year, Ponza. Never heard of it. It's a 
red-green land destruction mid-range deck named after a deep-fried calzone. Oh, the calzone. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. From Jimmy's Grotto. I feel like that's actually kind of an even matchup and kind of just depends on who gets the better draw. But it puts more pressure on the Ponza player to be smart with their pillage, whether they need to remove a land or remove an Aether Vial. And I was even thinking about something like Niftalite being maybe very good against this strategy because it can play control, it can play removal, and it even has main deck Unmoored Ego. And if you like take out the Goblin Snoops, it's going to be very hard for the Goblin deck to recover, especially in game one. I mean, Niftalite's interesting because it's like the ultimate mid-range deck right we learned through through talking with dan and everybody of faith is looting about it and so that package of like two for ones it's like the ultimate two for one deck <laughs> all right so i feel like you're about to come to the the summation i did want to ask you how much how easy did you feel like the deck was to play like was the game plan pretty rote or did you think you had the ability to kind of outplay your opponent you know are you mostly just thinking about like is this hand, do I have to mull this because, you know, I don't have any combo pieces or where was your head kind of there after playing it for a while? I think I got to the point where I wanted to mull any hand that didn't give me some amount of action by turn two, but I don't think you actually have to mull for combo pieces because you have enough tutor effects that you'll find them eventually. Yeah, because you'll get to like Matron or even Ringleader where you're going to try to draw a bunch of cards and then maybe you're threatening the combo and pay turn like five or six instead of turn three sometimes yeah. but you've clogged the board enough you find a way to survive and you're just kind of going from there that's that's what you mean basically yeah yeah the combo is like kind of easy to play w once you know what the combo is it, it's clicky but it's not like so clicky that you're gonna waste five minutes it's maybe two minutes of clicking on mtgo yeah. that's much better than uh ballista and heliod i'll say that Totally, mm -hmm. totally. I would say the the level up opportunities for this deck, even though like the turn three combo itself is kind of easy, there's there's definitely ways that players can leverage the ability to like use your tutors to find specific cards, such as Tarfire, maybe such as like a, a token maker to maybe weasel out of sticky situations. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's where the deck gets challenging. Yeah, I feel like there's so many other goblins in this deck that do something that there have to be three or four interactions that I'm not even seeing by looking through this deck list. And I'm guessing that that's kind of the, the real way to maximize, you know, that last five, 10% is, you know, I don't have the combo, but what else am I doing to, to squeak out those last points of damage or to maximize the interactions built into my deck here? Yeah. I mean, for example, goblin war chief, really innocuous looks like it you know it says goblins you control have haste goblin spells you cast cost one less to cast one generic less to cast i imagine that's about trying to tutor up a that when you have snoop and you want to give it haste but you got a bunch of mana and you've got kikijiki on the top so you want to get snoop haste that's what that card is there for that's exactly right and it's often just like a one or two of so it's not consistent enough to reliably give your goblins haste to win out of nowhere but that option is there if, like, you know, the conditions are right and the coast is clear. And the other thing is, you know, you're playing Skirk Prospector and a number of cards that make extra tokens, right? So Mog War Marshal that makes extra extra tokens. Basically, um, you can, you know, ramp a little bit in this deck too if you get the right where you get a bunch of extra mana, get to play an extra tutor, do all that kind of stuff. So there's some there's some alternate paths to victory here. I'm I'm, I'm sure of it too. 
Right. And you can use your goblins interactively with munitions expert as well to if you clog the board and like if if you need to kill a, a reality smasher, for example, you could potentially do that with a munitions expert if you manage to like get enough goblins out. But that's not always easy to do. Totally. Did you feel like this deck was like pretty tier one ish when you were playing it? Or did you think it was like maybe just flavor of the minute and so people were into it? I think it's both. You know, what is tier one? Is it power level or popularity? Or- I, I would say f- fits in the bucket of able to win a tournament on a given week would be tier one for me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if if Devastation can win a tournament, this can too. But if the metagame is full of midrange and control, the goblin deck is going to struggle. The more The more removal spells you have in your deck, the more favored you're going to be against goblins. And the worse you're going to be against band control. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I said it was a sleeve, but really, I feel like if if this episode is college level Spanish 101, this deck kind of like took the prerequisite exam to test out of that course. You know, we, we knew it was going to be good. We certainly knew it was going to be tested and potentially popular. And like that kind of came to fruition. So, yeah, it got a five in AP high school combo. It's got, it's got some extra time in its schedule uh, freshman year now as a result. That's right. So play it. Have a plan against it. There's probably even like better sideboard cards that I'm not thinking about, like Trinosphere or something. There, there's going to be more ways to metagame against this deck than not. And once you have a deck that you like in the current metagame, I think you may find yourself in a position where you need to have a plan against goblins. So find out what that is and, uh, and know how... And, and know how your deck can play against it. Watch out for Aether Vial. That's probably the first thing <laughs> to think about, too, is when your opponent is threatening bringing things in with Aether, Aether Vial, be ready. Dave, I'm excited to hear about your testing and your deck this week. You know why? Why is that? Because, well, you're potentially proving the naysayers wrong. No, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so... It's my turn, and I think maybe it was clear from the end of the episode last week or the week before that the card that I was most excited to play with out of Core 21 is Stormwing Entity. It's been getting some Twitter hype this week here and there. Uh, I'm going to read it out for people, just in case they don't know. Stormwing Entity, three generic blue-blue for a 3-3 flyer with prowess. And it says, when Stormwing Entity enters the battlefield, scry two. And crucially, the most important line of text on it is, this spell costs two generic and a blue less to cast if you've cast an instant or sorcery spell this turn. It's a big bird with prowess that you can cheat into play on turn two. So I said a couple weeks ago, prowess is probably my favorite deck, as it's turned out over the last year or so. I love playing Lightning Bolts. I love playing Monastery Swift Spear. I've been looking for a long time for an excuse to kind of get blue in there so I could play some Ops or some Serum Visions, play some other cards along with it. Uh, as good as Mono Red Prowess is on its own, sometimes it feels like it's not the most interactive strategy uh, just because of the way that you've constrained yourself to a single uh, color. And so the the idea of trying to find a way to get blue in there to do some other stuff, you know, literally drawing a card instead of and manipulating your deck instead of just giving no creatures trample off of crash through, for example, was something I was definitely thinking about when I was starting to brew with this. And so when I started working with this, I was like, the first night that M21 came out, I was like, I'm just going to put together a deck and I'm going to 
get some Stormwing entities on Moto and play it. This guy's brewing. I know, which is not something I usually do. It's not really a brew because it's not like I came up with the deck. Like it's trying to jam something into an existing shell. But I did the whole thing where I like went onto the marketplace on Moto and tried to find cards because Mana Trader didn't Mana Traders didn't have it yet. And I managed to get enough copies to play. I got four copies. And you know, the the upside seems huge with this card to me. To play a three-three flyer with prowess for two seems great. It scries two as a fallback. So if someone kills it, it's sort of like the worst serum visions ever because they spent a card to get rid of your card. So it's still kind of like a one for one in that sense. And you still get your your scry too. So like, what's the problem? I don't see a problem. Yeah. Doesn't that sound good to you, Stan? <laughs> Sounds great. So I, the way that I wanted to think about this for a minute to share with people is, you know, what did I hope this would do for whatever deck it went into? And what I thought was I hoped it would help a deck like Prowess or Mono Red Prowess more credibly stretch into a second color. You know, we've had Red Black Prowess that would happen during the Luris era. You know, we've had inklings of people playing blue uh, with it because of Sprite Dragon, which is a pretty kind of good and powerful card um, to try to get together something that evolves that deck a little bit or maybe just has a different take on it for a different metagame which i've talked about a couple of different times you know it's funny that after i started working on this list i listened to the episode of faithless brewing from last week where dave from faithless brewing had they had sprite dragon as their kind of like brewer's challenge so everybody on the show was brewing with sprite dragon and dave had put together you know every podcast has a dave on it by the way so (laughs) so their dave funny how their dave and our dave was never in the same room at the same time I know. Well, we're, we're all part of the, the splintered Dave collective consciousness. Oh, that's how it is. And he, he put together a list that was actually pretty close to a lot of the ones that I mess around with eventually, which is basically kind of like, you know, I started with a heavy blue deck and then evolved away from that. And he was kind of already at that kind of mostly red deck. So I just wanted to give a hat tip there because I did kind of mess around with some of the lists that were close to what he was doing. And I'll, I'll talk about what I thought about this too. A lot of this was like every time I've tried Red Blue Prowess, I've hated Storm Chaser Mage in in the deck. It's I don't like, like it. It's just it's expensive. It doesn't scale up permanently. Stan's smiling because Stan has had some fun with it recently. I used to hate it. I've come around a little bit. Well, I think at this point it's pretty outmoded just by Stormwing ent- Entity, at least in in modern. But um, spoilers maybe for later. We could talk about that. You know, I hope that being able to play real cantrips like Opt and Serum Visions might be an upgrade on a card like Crash Through or Warlord's Fury. You know, Selection, one of them's an instant. You get to set yourself up for future turns, which is one thing you don't get to do a lot of in in Prowess. I hope that adding Flying as a dimension into Prowess would make the deck a little bit better, just because having Sprite Dragon and also Storming Entity as a couple of threats that are evasive just make it them easier to get through where sometimes you get bogged down when you're playing Soulscar Mage and um, Monastery Swift Spear. The last thing I w- was, was I, I started out trying Teamer Battle Rage in here as a way to kind of make both, uh, bring some of the stuff I learned with Sprite Dragon in five color, four color shadow into this deck, but also um, Storming Entity just turns on Teamer Battle Rage. And so you can attack for eight the next turn if you, if you happen to have that combination of cards. Not like I was doing it, you know, as one of the main parts of the plan, but I had two Tamer Tamer Battle Rages in my first couple of builds. That sounds like a deck I would love to play. And if you hadn't run it, maybe I would have. Yeah. So the game... I mean, hold on, hold on. What what about me? 
I, I like I like prowessy decks. So. Mm, do you? I like oh yeah, I love red prowess decks. Like red, it's just like you know a different variant on red burn. Uh, but I do like when you talk about cards getting stymied on the ground and being able to attack in the air. That is super appealing uh, because there's so many times when a single large blocker can make you una- unable to really attack because you're just throwing away a resource and getting like three, two or three points of damage in, and then you can't repeat that the next turn. And something like Sprite Dragon along for the ride with Storming Entity, you have a number of flyers potentially that are also being buffed up by just playing spells. So it seems like a recipe for success when the, We've seen the red version be successful, and we have seen sort of lower tier, like blue-red wizards or blue-red decks in general have some level of success. So maybe this just makes it a lot better. Yeah, so the question was, how do we enable this card to work within the shell in a way that doesn't take us too far off of our plan, right? So the the next thing I thought about was, my goal is to twist the card selection of the deck to get more free spells in to be able to try to get a turn two Stormwing more often, right? So we want it available the, the highest amount of time. So the first thing I did was I put in four mutagenic growths, which is kind of like, you know, your options there, if you're thinking about, you know, I looked at Phyrexian Mana and was kind of like, what do I want to do? Do I want to go with Gutshot or do I want to go with mutagenic growth? So when I was brewing the deck, I started with mutagenic growths because I have loved it in blue red prowess before it's one of the main things that i enjoyed the last time i tried to play blue red prowess with storm chaser mage and stuff like that and then also i put in of course four manamorphose and then i tried out four rift bolt so to try to do turn one suspend into turn two storm wing mm-hmm. with this kind of configuration we're going to talk about math for a second stan is smiling as he's starting to look at the math in the sheets because he loves seeing percentages <laughs> So with this configuration where you have 12 free spells, quote unquote free spells or enabler spells, and four storm wings, you can expect to have the right combination of cards in hand only 36.6% of the time. So with no disruption and assuming you have the right lands, it's a turn two storm wing one third of the time. What do we think about that? Eh, I mean, if turn two is your main goal, those aren't great numbers. How bad is turn three? I actually don't think it's that bad. And actually, I don't think turn five is that bad for, for Stormwing either when it really comes down to it in this deck. You know, my configuration ran 11 free spells originally and three Stormwing, so it was actually worse. It was 28% of the time. But the real thing is that I think that if you want to play with Stormwing you, and you want to try to get on turn two, you have to run four of them because that makes a huge difference in that percentage. The thing I'm going to say really quick off the top is that my initial build of this deck had four serum visions. It had four ops in it. It had four rift bolts. It had mutagenic growth and things like that. Serum visions is just like not good for this deck. And ultimately opt. I also decided was not good in this deck, but we'll talk about that more later. Um, but rift bolt clearly was really pretty bad. And the reason that it was pretty bad is because there were so many times when I wanted to do something else on turn one that was not suspend Rift Bolt. Like, I want to play a Soulscar Mage, or I want to play Monastery Swift Spear, and I don't want to wait until turn three to play those cards. So what happens is I drop that on turn one, I no longer get to play Stormwing Entity on turn two, because that kind of felt a little bit like putting all my eggs in one basket. And so there's a little bit of conflict that's going on in the build that I originally had. Again, a build that was really heavy on like blue cantrips being a big part of the plan and and some other cards like that. 
So I ended up switching back to a more traditional build that's with crash through and lava dart instead of uh, serum visions and rift bolt. So there's a couple of other things that, that I had to, to get out of this too. The biggest thing that fell out of the initial list that I had is that I, there wasn't space to run light up the stage because of all the shenanigans I was doing with like mutagenic growth and teamer battle raids and stuff like that. I cut I had to cut down the number of bedlam revelers I had. I was only running one. And let me tell you, that felt like a mistake after playing for a while. And then finally, there there isn't space to run Lava Spike either. And in a way, I was kind of substituting mutagenic growth for Lava Spike, sort of, but kind of problematic. So it felt like I had a lot of card draw, but it was sort of like not enough action cards because I had all these ops and, and serum visions and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of iteration one. How did it really play? Well, let's talk really just about Stormwing entity that's what we're here for yeah exactly so i managed to get the card out a lot right and i found that times when i played it you do often get punished if you don't have a way to protect it right it doesn't die to fatal push which is great but it does die to lightning bolt unless you have something up there to protect it whether it's a mutagenic growth or a gut shot or something like that you know it's also interesting that like it doesn't die to abrupt decay and it it I think that that caused some problems for your kind of like Jundi, black green kind of mid rangey decks. When they saw Storming Entity, they were kind of like, ooh, boy, I don't have a ton of ways to kill this. I better be careful. Um, I actually found that when I cast it in the mid game, it was still just as good as a threat to kind of try to close the game. So if I got out to an early lead off of my Soulscar Mage and my Monastery Swift Spears and then held back the Storming Entity for until later, then cast a spell, then cast entity, and then tried to keep going. That actually seemed to work pretty, pretty well. Yeah, especially against kind of the decks you just mentioned, when they don't have a lot of options for their removal suite to take care of it, and they've probably worked through some of those options if they felt really pressured beforehand. So you're not in a race against many mid-range decks, perhaps, because they're too busy dealing with their early threats. Yeah, Absolutely. And so the deck felt okay, but I totally got an 05 with the original deck. Yeah, buddy. With it, which was, yeah, buddy. Too bad. Too bad. And I think what it really came down to was like, you can't run Teamer Battle Rage in this deck. It's cute. I wish I, I could do it. You can't run two cantrips in this deck. You can't run Rift Bolt in this deck. You can't run, like, there were just so many cards that were bad in this deck that um, I had to really kind of re engineer it after this. And even when I did one more iteration where I was kind of like, all right, I'm going to try a second deck where I just have opt and no serum visions. And I just have two teamer battle rage and they're not as important. And I have lava dart and crash through and, and all these things, it still felt like a lot of, there were problems around opt and having too many mutagenic growths. And honestly, Sprite dragon, I don't think, I don't think I'm a fan anymore at this point. And I got, I got to ask, like the card just grows big, stays big. It flies. What do you not like about it? It's, it's really weird. It's sort of like, I think you need to choose one, two drop to play. And it's like, you can play Bright Dragon, you can play Kiln Fiend, or you can play Stormwing Entity. And the nice thing about Stormwing Entity is that it has flying and it's already big. So even if you're out of spells and your opponent happens to also be out of spells in the late game, you can kill them with it with sprite dragon if you top deck it late game it's just a one one (laughs) and it's really hard to make it big 
And so that was part of the thing that, you know, I got a little bit of Bedlam Reveler vibes off of Storming Entity ultimately because it was like, it's a game, it's a card that I can play late game that has some power and can maybe help finish the game without a huge amount of help. And that turned out to be really important. Although Bedlam Reveler, let's be honest, the draw three cards has still turned out to be way, 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 way more important than anything Stormwing Entity is bringing to the table to me. Hmm. This challenges me, David. Well, first of all, I know we're talking about Stormwing, but I just I I think you might be wrong about Sprite Dragon. Just kind of like, mm-hmm. like, at, at. <laughs> speechless. You know, the only time Sprite Dragon was great for me. When was that? Was when Ponza played a turn three Glorybringer or something like that, and tried to kill my two Sprite Dragons, exerted their Glorybringer, and then realized. They couldn't do it because the trigger can't hit dragons. Dragons. That's definitely the best part. <laughs> Here, here's the here's the thing. You know, I haven't played the Stormwing version, but I have played Sprite Dragon in red, blue prowess style decks with with more cantrips. A, and I always felt like mutagenic growth is actually just the best card in those decks. And I wonder if that lines up with kind of your experience of playing mutagenic growth here, or is it or is it worse because some of your creatures don't have haste? So here's the thing, all all in, the more that I played with the evenly split blue-red version of this deck, the more I started feeling like I really needed to be playing a red deck splashing blue for basically only Stormwing Entity, because it just didn't feel consistent enough, it didn't feel fast enough, it didn't feel like Sprite Dragon or the Cantrips were adding enough, and so Stan... You actually shared a list with me at the same time I was starting to think about moving more towards like what Dave from Faithless Looting had done, which was basically throwing a couple of blue creatures into a red deck. You shared a list with me from Gabriel Maxson, who is Mm -hmm. Spider Space, that also did the same thing. And I was kind of like, this is the deck that I'm going to play now instead. And here's the main difference. No Sprite Dragons. Four light up the stage, which was a big thing that I felt like I needed going after the first couple of rounds that I did with the more heavily blue red version is you really need those t- that two for one. You really need divination in this deck, honestly. Four storm wings, four Mishra's baubles, which is a good and useful card. Yeah, the ultimate prowess card. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Like it's it's not always in prowess. It's just been in since the Luris times and a little bit before too. Like Ryan Overturf has been playing it for a long time in, in Red Prowess, and I think it's really good in that deck. And I think it also turned out to be good here. Um, Spider Space is also running four gut shots and only two mutagenics, and so there were still six Frexian mana spells in that deck, but the the blend was a little different than what you might anticipate. I do think mutagenic is good, but I think gut shot to kill like a um, Arbor Elf or any number of X ones early in the game is actually pretty good right now. And so um, I felt pretty good about the build that they had put out there. And um, what spider space said was that all these free spells that save Stormwing entity from a lightning bolt kind of feel like you're playing with mental misstep. Which is true. Like, I got people a bunch of times with mutagenic growth or a gut shot to the face to save one of my cards from a, a removal spell a, a lot of times. You know, even saving like a Monastery Swift Spear from Seal of Fire in certain decks is, is still pretty good. So I felt like what happened was it really just turned out to me that you maybe Storming Entity is a version of the Red Prowess deck where that's the two drop that you are running. And the advantage that you get out of this is 
you get to still run Bedlam Reveler, but you have this kind of swingy two drop that's like you can shove all in with a spell and throw it down on turn two, or later in the game, it has some evasive power that lets you close, like I was saying earlier, that um, so it doesn't penalize you quite as much as drawing something like Sprite Dragon or a Storm Chaser Mage or something like that. If your opponent's at six, you know, when you play a Storming Entity, you, you can kill them pretty fast still. If your opponent's at six and you play a Sprite Dragon off the top, it's going to be a minute. This looks like the type of deck that I'm going to try to find time this week to play it and then maybe see what you think. I will say one of the big things about this blue-red deck versus the red deck is the sideboard in Spider Space's deck. You get to run three Mystical Dispute and three Aether Gust, which mm-hmm. is real good. Yeah. Aether Gust is fantastic against blue, uh, green, black midrange. It's good against Titan. Great against Uro. Yeah, it's great against Uro because it's like put it back in your hand and I'll, you know, we'll keep going. So there's um there's a bunch of stuff that you can do with that. You know, like in one match I played tonight, I picked I that went kind of long and grindy, which is one of the nice things that blue gives you. These blue sideboard cards give you the ability to go into a mid game without dying, basically. You know, I picked up someone's red and six right before they were gonna ultimate it on on Jund and managed to go around them still, <laughs> which is pretty wild. So I, I think that the main thing I would say about this is I haven't won a ton with this deck. Like I said, I got an 05 with my first build. I got a 2-3 with my second build. And then I got a 2-3 with Spider Space's build, basically. So it hasn't been like burning the house down or anything like that. But I do think that there's enough going on here that I feel like Storming Entity is going to be on the edge of a good card. It's going to be in the consideration set of cards for decks for a while. Um, I just don't know for sure if like this is the right time for this deck or if this is really the card that's going to bring Mono Red Prowess back up to the top or what. But I do think that this deck is kind of like more of a Believe Plus than a Sleeve. It's it's more, definitely when I first played it, I felt like it was kind of a Believe Minus. But after playing it a little bit more, I think it's a bit better. But overall, I still am a little kind of like skeptical as to whether this is the right way to go. And it's not better to just be all in on like Mono Red, Mono Red. I think it's meta dependent a lot. Yeah, I have to. I want to go back, Dave, because you're talking mm-hmm. about what blue gives you essentially, right? And and one of the things that I think people would immediately gravitate towards is what you did, like opt and maybe serum visions. Along with that, are really valuable here because of the the classic concepts of like turbo xeroxy style prowessy style decks. What do you think? were the reasons that opt and serum visions I'm guessing even more because of the sorcery speed nature made it feel like they weren't doing enough. Like what are the differences between this deck and decks where those cards are powerful and are doing what you need them to, even with low land counts and, and like, like we're seeing here with like 19 lands. Yeah. I mean, think about the difference between this kind of deck and death shadow. Right, which is a deck that runs a bunch of cantri- you know, runs a bunch of one mana spells, runs its play set of cantrips, whatever you feel like playing at that particular point in time. Um, I think that the difference here is that well, first thing is to make Monastery Swift Spear and Soul Scar Mage at their like top end, you really want to be able to occasionally have access to crash through. Right? Like some that's a huge thing for those two cards. To be able to occasionally have them have uh trample. It's big. 
Yeah. So that's one thing that made it hard to fit both of those cards in. The other thing is that, you know, I'm in a deck that runs a lot more of these kind of cantrips. You're playing more interactive cards. And so a lot of times what I'm looking for in this deck is just to get extra cards or cards that do damage. And having like an access to opt in that case isn't like the best thing in the world. Like a lot of times with opt, what I, what you're looking for is like, I want to get a land or a piece of, of interaction or something like that. You know, I don't want to opt into a soul scar mage in the mid game, you know, like that's, that's not great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'd rather, but I do think crash through is pretty big. I think the other thing is like, you really need like lava dart is good. You know what I mean? For the, in a, in a limited capacity and, um, you need a couple of spells like that that actually just do stuff, and so it's hard to even fit in one playset of these for me anyway. Uh, after playing with it, sure makes sense. It's just, I mean, it's basically like the cards aren't doing damage. Yeah, it's it moves the whole thing a little closer to burn that is able to go into the mid game than it does the other way. Um, the other thing I would say that's that's interesting is that you know that might only be true for modern because. Doomwake, who's a well-known streamer, played a blue-red is it deck with four Stormwing Entity that's much more to the close to the construction that I was kind of talking about to a pretty high finish in a, in a Pio uh, challenge over the weekend. I think maybe fourth place or fifth place or something like that. And that was much more kind of like, I got all these ops and I got all these other blue spells that draw cards. And then what we're doing is just getting Stormwing Entity out there and just kind of like going for it. That seemed to work totally fine. And I, I believe that that Doomwake's list was also running Monastery Swift Spear and Soulscar Maid. So I think it was a little bit of like, it doesn't seem to work quite as well in modern because this really isn't a Turbo Xerox deck. Whereas, you know, those are just the best kind of cards that are available in Pio. So I, I think I will keep playing around with this shell and see if it goes anywhere. But um, I don't think it's necessarily like everybody needs to hop on this and see if it works for them. All right, Dave, thank you for saying a bunch of stuff for me to be upset about and disagree with. I got to say, I'm very excited about Shane's deck because this looked like another card that A, slotted into like a good known strategy, and B, this seemed like one of those cards that I was just hearing on Twitter and in other podcasts that people kind of agreed like, this is going to be great. And I'm dying to hear if that kind of lined up with your experiences. Yeah, Stan's talking about Conclave Mentor. It's one of the cards I highlighted in our spoiler apps, one of our two spoiler apps. And to refresh your memory, it's a green-white 2-2. And it essentially has the winding constrictor hardened scales effect. If one or more 1-1 one, one counters we put on a creature you control, you get that many plus one instead. Um, additional text, when it dies, you gain life equal to its power. So it's basically a Selesnia winding constrictor. Um, which is the 2-3 version of that card in Golgari colors. Um, sure, Conclave Mentor doesn't put counters on artifacts, which definitely does come up for uh, Winding Constrictor, but Conclave Mentor wants to make up for that a little bit with the life gain trigger, and being in colors that generally care more about counter synergies. So it's not a huge Golgari synergy thing, but in Selesnia, in white cards, uh, it comes up a ton. And so Celestia Scales is trying to do much of the same thing as Golgari Scales, but it gains access to a number of interesting white or Celestia cards that synergize well with the rest of the deck 
and also allows you to potentially play some of the classic white main deck or sideboard cards that we have in the Pioneer format. And I was excited about the potential for this card. I've liked Scales decks in the past, and uh, Ross Miriam did a test with this deck on a recent SCG versus Live episode, so I picked it up and ran it through some matches as well. So uh, I think a lot of people already know this angle, but the engine pieces here are Hardened Scales and Conclave Mentor, and Scales is, of course, just an enchantment. Cause a single green. And you get an extra counter if you put a counter on a creature you control. That's really good. So you have eight scales type effects. And then you build a deck around those that synergizes with that and takes advantage of that effect. So let's talk about kind of the the core creatures first. And I think this deck is built in a really similar way. You'd you'd recognize a lot of these creatures if you've played some of the more aggressive uh, Golgari-based builds of scales it has a really low curve that allows you to play to the board quickly and then grow your creatures more large more fast than one or your opponent at least might anticipate and so your one drops here are experiment one and pelt collector and both of these creatures have different uh, similar ways of growing when creatures with greater power or greater toughness for experiment one uh, enter the battlefield. And so along with hardened scales or conclave mentor, these are the cards that you really want to see in your opening hand because they allow you to have your really insane starts uh, because they are growing from your later plays up on the curve. So just for example, like if you play one of those into a conclave mentor on turn two, that triggers their evolve ability or the triggered ability on pelt collector and you have Conclave Mentor on the battlefield that puts two counters on instead of just one, and you get the Pioneer equivalent of a Wild in the Cattle. You have your one mana 3-3, three, three, a swinging on turn two. Pretty decent. Not insane anymore, but still pretty darn decent. Um, but then your later plays also allow you to take advantage of the growth potential of E1 and Pelt Collector. You get bonus counters from your engine cards. You have Stone Coil Serpent. Uh, you've heard probably a lot about this card because it's sneaky good. You know, you get as many counters as you paid in mana. Uh, it's just an X, you know, X card. You get that many counters on it, but it has this versatile and powerful bunch of words that people love to not read, including <laughs> myself. So it has reach is the big one. Yeah, reach. Reach is like what? It, it so it can block those birds. It can block those spirits. Reach trample protection from multicolored which comes up in some funny ways sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, Teferi can't bounce it. Uh, you know, I had an instance where I was playing against like sort of a, a combo-y uh, against the odd style deck, and my opponent swung in with a Dragonlord Dramoka. And I was just like, block. And they were like, yeah. oh, fiddlesticks. Wow. Oh, it does nothing. <laughs> it does nothing. I get no life gain. Uh, my flying blocker is tapped, so probably GG. Uh, the next, of course, big later play that you're going to want to do a lot of good stuff with is Walking Ballista, the the now classic card that many people think probably needs to go in Pioneer. It's just, it's good at so many points in the game, right? Like you're clearing out a mana dork early, uh, or maybe someone left a prowess creature up and exposed, and you need some interaction to get that off the board. Or you play it later as like a 4-4 machine gun, because your counter generators make it really big quickly. Uh, or 
The thing everyone hates is you combo off with Heliod for infinite damage, and I'll talk about. Uh, Wait, you have Heliod in this deck too? I mean, Come on! Yeah, you gotta, you gotta. It's green white. That's that's one of the big gains, right? I mean, I guess I kind of glossed over that point. You didn't right? say Just Heliod like, at the top. Well, I mean, I mentioned I mentioned key white cards. And so yeah. it was kind of just, that was just a tease. But yeah, Heliod is definitely one of the big reasons that you would play Selesnya scales over Golgari scales is because you want to have access to the combo that you likely know what it is, but I'll kind of get into different ways this deck can get to the combo pretty easily. There's a few chamber sentry in this deck. A creature I really didn't love, and I sat at it out often when I had better options. It's it's like an X creature that ETBs with as many counters as mana colors you use to cast it. And you can also pay X, tap it, and remove X number of counters to deal that much damage to any target. So there's like some potentially interesting interaction options there, or like maybe a little mini fireball, but I thought it was kind of expensive and slow. And I think there's a reason that Ross only dropped two in here. Yeah, it's sort of like your backup walking yeah. ballistas. Yeah, your back and your backup, just an backup X spell too, I think, right? Because all of these spells have in common, they're X spells. So they they can be cast for as much mana as you would like. So you can get them just big enough to trigger experiment one and trigger pulp collector. Like if you have a two-powered experiment one and you want to trigger it, you can play a, a three-power uh, X spell, right? And then that triggers it. Or if a pelt collector needs you to have a, a four power spell, a four power creature, then you drop it down for f- four counters. And that can, or you can cast it to outclass maybe a creature on the other side of the battlefield. So, oh, they have this three four. I know I'm going to need this to be a four four so I can block and not have to trade with it. Or you can, if you're playing against a red deck, you can say, well, I'm going to want these to be X fours if possible. So they can dodge the. Uh, lightning strike or something like that, or at least an X three. So they dodge uh, stomp and shock. And then you can also just leave mana up for other spells or creatures. Like if you don't need to make, put all your eggs in one basket, like you don't need to have a six, six, for instance, you can make two, three, threes or something like that. And that's especially valuable. If you have a scales effect out where if you cast a couple two mana spells, then you're actually getting two, three, threes or two, four, fours rather than like one, five, five or something like that. Right. So you're actually getting more power and toughness across more bodies because you're casting more creatures that are triggering separately off of those, uh, those effects. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of these come in with counters already. You don't have to put counters on them later. So then your synergistic pieces, like your counter growing pieces, make them even larger later. And so some of those are things like Quatley's Raptor, which is a two, three vigilance dinosaur, for just green and white is proliferate. And that adds a counter to anything that already has a counter on it. And so if you have your counter engine cards, like uh, scales or the mentor online, you're actually adding two counters or more to anything that has a counter on it. That's a nice way to build up an existing board. It's great with uh, Nissa voice of Zendikar, which I'll talk about next. Um, this has been a staple of the Golgari scales deck for a long time because it's just a three mana walker. It allows you to plus up and grind against uh, board stall type decks or against removal style decks where you can just be creating a little uh, army of O one one plants that then when you decide to minus her puts plus one plus one counters on everything. More frequently, you're going to just have a decent board and drop Nissa and immediately minus her. And then you're adding something like eight to ten 
power and toughness to your board all at once, which can just be a huge swing for a fairly cheap cost. And Nissa sticks around. So it's not like you're just casting some three mana spell that does a one-time effect. Uh, she's still there with one loyalty. One thing that Ross included as a two of was Venerated Loxodon. It's this four and a white, four, four elephant with Convoke. And so you can use your creatures to cast it. And when you do so with the Venerated Loxodon, you get a plus one, plus one counter to the creatures that Convoked it. And so there's definitely some opportunities to get this down fairly quickly and then get a bunch of counters put onto your creatures while also triggering Evolve and uh, the Evolve on the E1 and, and your Pell Collector because it's a 4-4, locks it on. So that could be a really nice boost as well. Yeah, this card is a huge pain when you use it in the right situation. Like it's just a mm. giant swing. Um, yeah. Yeah, for a bit, and you get a big creature out of it. Like, I mean, I I haven't played it in Pio, but I've played against it in like Arena Standard and uh, Draft, and man, yuck. Yeah, the main problem is, is it kind of feels like you're taking a turn off with it, typically because you're tapping yeah. everything down. But if you have the time, it's conditionally really good, and that's why it's only a two of. I suspect is like one just for testing it, and two because it's not always great. Like you really want to have a board with this. And so if yeah. you're if you're just getting your stuff plinked off, then you have this venerated locks out on your hand. You're like, well, poop. Okay, this deck is laser focused on making the biggest creatures as fast as possible. Yes, there's no interaction in this deck. None, none main deck besides if you want to count walking ballista and maybe cha- maybe chamber sentry. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. But that's like your basic interaction. So the whole thing is like I'm gonna make giant guys and swing swing into you with like a f- yeah. Five, 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 and a six, six on turn four. Yeah, that's 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 kind of the the best starts. I'm like swinging for eight on turn three. You know, swinging for you know a little, maybe sometimes more than that. But like, you can really get some really nice starts. Like if you're on the play and you're swinging with a couple of huge one drops and your two drop probably on turn three, then you're 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 doing it, and that feels really good. And much like the mono white deck in Pioneer. There's there's the backup of the combo, right? With Heliod, and that's one of the primary reasons that one might want to choose Selesnya over Golgari. And this deck has a number of ways to get to that Heliod Ballista combo on turn four. Okay, so bear with me. Yeah. Um, so one A slash B is like a turn sc- turn one scales or a turn two Conclave Mentor. Turn three Heliod. Turn four Ballista for two, and then use the remaining two mana to activate Heliod. Easy breezy. Second way is like a turn two Ballista on one, turn three Heliod, and then turn four Hawali's Raptor for the proliferate trigger, and then use your extra two mana to activate Heliod. And then the third way is like a turn one creature of any kind, turn two Ballista on one, turn three Heliod, turn four, tap all your creatures to cast a Venerated Loxodon, and then use the remaining two mana to activate Heliod. I, I figured that one out just today. <laughs> wow. There might be there might be more ways. Um so but this of course relies on you having four mana by turn four. And your odds on that are fifty-four percent on the play and sixty-four percent on the draw. So not only do you have to have your cards line up, you have to keep hitting your mana, which is not exceptionally reliable as this deck features no mana ramp and only runs uh twenty-two lands in the build uh that I ran. So that's also the option. Like, I mean, and you don't have to do it on turn four, right? Like you can always just threaten 
the combo at some point in the future. Like if the opponent doesn't have interaction for you, or you maybe you kind of hopefully ran them out of interaction early, like they used up their fatal pushes and abrupt decays and whatnot to to clear your early creatures out and stop your engine, stop your conclave mentors, and then you have a Heliod sticking around, you're at a bunch of mana, then you just play that you know, walking ballista out and go for the combo. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have a bailout in a, in a deck that's all about attacking, right? Yeah. I, and I love that about this deck in particular. Like, we, we kind of danced around that topic with Goblins. We talked about it last week with Winota. Like, having these combo finishes that went out of nowhere, but also having, like, a plan B that's viable and powerful. I love how well this leverages, like, beat down. that it sounds to me, if I'm hearing you correctly, Heliod is not plan A. Heliod is just there to, like, potentially squeeze out a win yeah so stan i'd agree that heliod isn't plan a it's he's very rarely even enabled because of the lack of white pips in the deck and so what i think it's one of the advantages that he uses is his enchantment ability which is just basically like if you gain life then you can put counters on things and so you can just use the one in the white activation you can give something lifelink if you have your counter engine pieces online you're making two or three counters you can activate it on multiple creatures so like you can get two or three things lifelink make right. a whole bunch of counters that way that works really well i mean you um, can even just outrun other aggressive decks because you have this card in your deck where you're like, oh, you're you're red. Okay, I'm going to swing with a 6-6 six, six with lifelink now. Yeah. Like, come on back from that. Yes, exactly. Um, so you're kind of getting at Stan. It's like, how did this deck play? And I think it played an awful lot like you might expect, right? Which is there's enough redundancies for the various pieces that you feel like things are coming together pretty often. And there's times when you're swinging with something like 8 nine power on turn three, you're feeling pretty darn good about yourself. But because it's an engine based deck, you are feeling like you kind of maybe have to hard mull for at least like a scales or a conclave mentor. Your mentor is pretty easy to interact with against like a burn deck or a removal heavy deck. You know, Constrictor at least in the Golgari scales could dodge shock, could dodge stomp. But uh because mentor is a two, an X two, a two two rather, then you know just eats. It gets stomped. It gets shocked. It gets wild slashed. I mean, you gain two life, so that's all good, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Great, <laughs> it's worth a card. Yeah. Uh, but what's what's funny is the mana didn't feel that bad. No, it's allied. It's an allied deck in Pioneer, and you, you're saying the mana didn't feel that bad. Come on, are you? Do you, are, do you have a fever? <laughs> <laughs> hold on hold on this is important i feel like this is what we should have been talking about the whole time and how how well you got the mana to work here no the mana didn't work great i mean there's still times when you do have to mold just because your mana is bad and i also just like got desperate and instead of four fortified village i ran two and then i up the mana confluence to three because so i was just like i'm not losing to reveal lands i'm not dealing with reveal lands the the check lands are bad enough i'm just not running for fortified village in this deck um so i didn't i mean of course that hurts it hurts to run three mana confluence sometimes yeah that, that's for sure i i do wonder though like whether you were able to get away with allied mana in a deck like this because even though some of your best two drops and turn two spells go for white it was it seems to me like it's really important that you just have green on turn one Yes, for sure. You want green on turn one, hundred percent. So there's a definitely it definitely slants more towards the uh, forest end of things than the plains, and so 
you know, that is, that's something that's valuable. It's also another reason I didn't really want to deal with the reveal lands because I didn't want to have to like rely on having, like let's say I had a fortified village and, you know, no temple garden or forest. And then I'm just oh, well, like, I have to mull this away. And like, yeah. if I have a really great hand in a mana confluence, I'm just going to be like, well, I'm going to drop this because I'm going to probably outrace my opponent. It just kind of makes me wonder if like one of the takeaways, not necessarily just about this deck, but maybe uh, uh, allied colored decks in Pioneer in particular, like if you can skew toward one color such that like you always want to have green on turn one and you can maybe get away with not getting that second color until turns two and three, you can then run more basics and you could maybe afford to like not just run fewer of the reveal lands, but maybe even like they get a little better as well because you're really just splashing a little bit for that second color. And like, it kind of makes me wonder if like that kind of gives this deck some potential if maybe it cuts down on its need to play white, except for, you know, a handful of spells. Yeah, that's you'll, you. I, I'll speak more to that in a minute. I think Stan, something along those lines. I, I think more about playing this deck too, is that I think my options for the quick combo or even like the, the combo didn't feel like they came up that often. And I think it might be because it's just somewhat easy to interact with and also somewhat telegraphed and pioneers like a pretty combo E format. I didn't feel like I had a lot of options to to drop it and the cards just didn't come together in the manner that they needed to or if i if they did i was up against a deck that had interaction and i knew it would just blow me out if i tried to play uh the walking ballista out there and so that wasn't something that was like a main game plan for me it definitely felt like the secondary game plan like dave was saying which is like you know all of these cards are designed to beat down rather than sort of set up the combo. And that's something, if you remember when we talked about the mono white deck, is that it didn't feel like it played an amazing beatdown plan. It sort of felt like it, like it was passable. And this is definitely designed to get big creatures down quickly, and then maybe you get the, the combo off. I think the real question, of course, is like, is this worth playing over Golgari scales? And like, my answer is, uh, it's like, like Golgari basically has access to every card in this deck. Besides the pretty good Hoatli's Raptor and the combo piece of Heliod, um, I don't think Loxodon is like some major piece of power that Golgari has been missing. Um, and I think Golgari also gets access to hand and board interaction, and Silesian just doesn't really get that. Uh, of course, the sideboard in white's great, and there's some hard stop pieces like Rest in Peace and getting into the trials is quite good sometimes. Um, Maybe, maybe dropping in power with cards we'll talk about later this episode. There's just plenty of artifacts that have similar effects that uh, Golgari can run. It's not quite as good as Rest in Peace, but then also it doesn't kill your uh, scavenging use. Like, you know, against, against graveyard decks, I'm like, well, I'm bringing in Rest in Peace and I probably should bring in scavenging use because I want one of these pieces. And then you get right. both of them and you're like, well, crap. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I think I think the point that you have here is like, do you want to run Heliod? And right now, there's a lot of combos in in Pioneer. And like, do you think it's good to be running a combo, or do you think it's good to be trying to get under them before they get a chance to get set up? The combos are pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, you know, Inverter's not the slowest deck, and it can it can outlast people. And Lotus Breach can just be super fast sometimes. So, mm-hmm. I think it's a decent question. I think so. I think that this deck can get under some combos because it can be really fast. And I think it can also generate its own combo. So I don't know if 
splitting the difference is, I don't know if this deck is trying to split the difference. And I, I but so I'm curious about a couple tweaks and changes that might make this deck a little bit better. Like I think removing uh, the Loxodon, which seems a little bit like more cute than good and trying to get more main deck interaction back, like maybe adding a voracious Hydra, which we see a lot in the Golgari scales deck and Ross excluded it here. I would, I, th- I think I would have loved to see some voracious Hydras sometimes because that allows you to either make something huge, which is going to trigger all of your uh, growth effects, or it's going to allow you to interact with your opponent's board which is also quite good often. Um, and then I also probably wouldn't mind upping the Heliod to four instead of three, just to ensure the combo is more likely to occur or potentially tinker with some number of Ozolith. So like if you're, you're working so hard to generate these counters, why not keep them with the Ozolith and you know, move them onto a creature that's going to attack the next turn or something like that. And I'm curious why that was co- completely eliminated uh, it hasn't been a major staple, but Ozolith has definitely been showing up and I think is worth at least testing. So my my final verdict is it's a believe, but not like a strong one. And we're like, I guess that's a believe minus, right? Like it feels like yet another creature-based synergy deck in Pioneer that relies on maintaining some kind of board and then growing your creatures quickly enough to invalidate what your opponent's trying to do, which can be challenging because like mid-range decks pick apart your hand, they pick apart your board, and then they set up these bigger end games that you just can't come back from. And like we said earlier, like combo decks might be either faster than you or be picking apart your hand and your board before they combo off like inverter. Uh, Mono black is popular right now, and that has hand and board interaction while beating you down and grinding you out. And so like what I ask myself is like new decks make you have to ask questions like, are you doing something better than existing decks or different enough that people don't know how to play against what you're trying to do or don't have the, the tools to stop what you're trying to do. And I don't think this deck is doing either. So the question is, is like, you know, is it better than existing deck? It has to probably be better than Golgari scales. And I think that it's still being ironed out, like if that's the case or not. And I think there's some tweaks that could be made, but even then hardened scales is not like some, you know, huge game player, a huge, like major player in the format. It's just a deck that I think has some pretty cool synergies and it can be fun to play and can like get people like going faster than them. So that's where I am. I think that it's if you like scales, you're going to test this deck. I don't have to convince you otherwise. Um, I think that there's not a lot of pieces you have to get for this deck that you don't already have, besides potentially Heliod. And I wouldn't necessarily pick up a whole bunch of Heliods just to play this deck. But it's a it's a cool deck. It's fun. Um, the synergies are there. Allied mana will that's better. Will make this deck better, of course. So, do you see yourself playing more of this strategy? Well, the problem, Stan, is I have to play so many strategies for other episodes of this podcast that that's challenging. You know, I, I actually have, there's a lot of decks that I'm, I really want to play again in the format. Like I want to, um, I want to test out some of these newer prowess decks in pioneer. I want to test out mono black again. Um, there's like, there's some newer decks, some like sort of vaguely newer decks that are popping up that I want to go back to. Like I want to check out, uh, mono red aggro and burn again, and maybe even Winota again with some tweaks, so it's just like, there's so much stuff that I, and then modern, I guess that's a format that I should be playing more of too. Like I want to be playing humans again. So there's so much stuff. So the answer is no. Yeah. I guess it's <laughs> yeah. a really long way to say no. I guess my, the one thing that I kind of feel reading the stack and hearing you talk about a little bit is like, especially that last thought where you were kind of like, 
it's not doing something better than the other decks. The thing that's interesting here to me is like, it's got the combo that you occasionally sort of like luck your way into, but there is no way to manipulate your deck to get to the combo. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's no card draw, there's no card filtering, there's no Arcanist Owl or anything like that that helps you kind of like move through it. There's no analog to a collected company kind of card. Not that there's anything that rivals collected company for pure value, but you know what I mean? Like there's nothing that helps you push through your deck to get to the pieces you're looking for. This deck is really just like, I'm playing off the top and I'm going to beat you down. And occasionally I'm going to randomly get Heliod and walking ballista. And I, I think that that's a bit of an indictment in itself of what this deck is capable of. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's got, it's got some potential, so it's fun. Enjoy it. Well, there you have it, folks. Another sleeve, believe, heave in the bag. That wraps up this week's episode. Stand, stand. There's more decks. There's more decks? There's more decks. Nothing but net decks? All right, how about we just take a quick break, play our music, and when we return, we're going to talk about some more decks. The ones that we didn't play, but we still thought were cool. Well, I, I may have played some of them. Stay with us. All right, so there are more decks in Modern. There's more decks in Pioneer. I actually got to play several more. I had a lot of free time last week and over the weekend, and I made the most out of it. And one of our approaches for you know the, the remaining half of this episode was to try to test or point out some decks that were not only featuring new cards, but maybe featuring some of the specific cards that got us excited during the spoiler process. If you recall, I was really into some of the new three mana elves that were being introduced to Modern and Pioneer, particularly Fierce Empath and Llanowar Visionary. So what did I do? The same thing I do practically every three months when a new set comes out. I did it with Zerda. I'm doing it again. I tried playing elves in Modern and Pioneer. It's like the changing of the seasons. <laughs> That's right. And, you know... I can't take credit for like brewing anything per se, because I kind of just took like pre-existing elf shells and just kind of jammed some of these new cards in there. But these weren't decks that I saw put up results. So this is somewhere between Stan's iteration and, you know, tried and true elf strategies. We're going to try to get through these quick, so I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, And, you know, I'll I'll support my claim a little bit. I'll let my co-host ask questions, but... In modern, I kind of think elves is just going to stay dead. Oh, no. Wow. At least as long as things like Jund and Prowess exist. I will say at least the modern deck can kind of goldfish fairly quickly. Pioneer elves, which I also threw together. I felt like I was playing a kitchen table deck at the FNM. That's a bad feel. That was my 05. And... Look, I'm not saying I'm some great magic player. I just don't go 05 that often. And I was like, oh God, there's nothing I could do. I went 05 in my league. I won one game. Oof. So it was Brutal. a bunch of 02s and then one one two against Inverter, in fact. <laughs> All right, so he, the two decks were a little different. In Modern, I played Green-White. So I uh, played like the Devoted Druid combo, but in an Elves shell 
with the goal of making infinite mana either to win off of an Azuri or to get infinite mana and find Crater Hoof Behemoth. Either using like Fierce Empath in my hand or if I had Court of Calling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can also make infinite mana, play a collected company, find Fierce Empath that way and go up the chain or Azuri for that matter. Um, and what I did in that deck was I, I got the visionaries in there and I really only played like a couple fierce empath, but I played three or four visionaries there. Um, and I will say like visionary was fine. It was, it did feel like an upgrade to elvish visionary, which is the one, two that draws a card because more often than not, your play pattern is turn one mana dork, turn two, three mana spell. And like, if you kind of look at visionary as a two drop, I think it's decent on rate. Part of the problem is just the fact that like elves are so, so easy to kill. Maybe I got unlucky because people were kind of metagaming against goblins and like a lot of the things that are good against goblins is good against elves. So I didn't go for black. I didn't go for shaman of the pack because uh, I didn't think this was going to be like a good go wide strategy. Right. <clears throat> maybe there's maybe there's some room there to improve and either go Abzan or go green black. Time will tell and I'll let the elves community figure that out. In Pioneer, I did play green black because you don't have infinite mana. So I tried to go a little more wide, have some more beatdown options with like Clan Caller. Um, and I likewise kept a couple of Fierce Empaths to do the thing that Dave suggested, which is Decimator of the Provinces. That didn't work out great, I gotta imagine, because you won 05. Well, my friend, my one win against Inverter was because I got Decimator out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a Critter Hoof type effect. Hoof Kinda, yeah. Not as big. Yeah. But. I I will say the cool thing about like Crater Hoof's emerge cost is if you if you play your Fierce Empath, get um the Decimator, and then sack the the Empath to the Decimator's emerge cost, then Decimator only costs six mana, which is very doable for elves. Right. And even though you don't have like Archdruid, which taps for how many elves you control, I was playing um, Marwyn the Nurturer which I believe is a Dominaria card that scales as you play more elves and, and she taps for mana equal to her power. Right. So with something like Clan Caller, she gets bigger. If you sequence her with like enough elves, she can like tap for six by herself. So I thought that was kind of cool. But the ultimate problem with the Pioneer version, why I think it's actually just objectively worse than the modern version is because it doesn't goldfish very quickly mm. like at least at least in modern you can goldfish a turn three kill you can turn fish mm-hmm. a, goldfish a turn four kill in in pioneer even with shaman of the pack like you can't get quite wide enough to like get a kill before maybe like turn five or six if if you're lucky so i'm sorry elf fans i'm sorry spencer i i don't think it's there if it is there it might maybe possibly be in modern i don't have a lot of hope for the pioneer version just yet can i just bust in here to, since we just talked about fierce empath for a second what do you got david what do you got for fierce empath well i'm just just a little note uh that card seems sort of powerful and something to keep an eye on i lost a match i don't think i lost the match i p- lost a game against amulet titan where they got a Fierce Empath and used it to go and get Primeval Titan to go off on turn two against me. Seems okay. Yeah. And so I would keep an eye on that card just as a piece of additional kind of tutoring that might end up in in a Titan decks somehow. I mean, the play pattern that they did was they, they got double amulet out, 
for one thing, which is always like, you're probably going to die when they get double amulet, but they use their summoners pack to go and get Azusa. And then once they had Azusa down, they cast, got a bunch of mana off of the double amulets, got used first empath to go and get their prime time and then cast their prime time. And that led to a turn two kill. Ouch. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Not the outlet I was expecting for fierce empath personally, but that just goes to show me and you, if you can fetch a six mana creature in modern, you should probably just get primeval Titan. Yep. Creator of behemoth is on the edge, but it's no primeval Titan. All right, let's talk about the next deck. I'm going to go fast through, through one I want to talk about now. Yeah, do it. So if I was to pick a card that I expected to see in the top eight of a modern challenge this weekend that cost one mana, it would not have been Thieves Guild Enforcer. <laughs> That's your poor foresight, Dave. I, yeah, well, that was high on your list. You already got the tattoo of the art, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just a Black Delver of Secrets. Nailed it. Yeah, so it was um, it came in seventh place in the Modern Challenge from Saturday, I believe, in a Grixis Delver deck, which was pretty sweet to see. Uh, if you forgot what Thieves Guild Enforcer does, it is a single black mana for a Flash 1-1 that says when Thieves Guild Enforcer or another rogue enters the battlefield under your control, each opponent mills two cards. As long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard, Thieves Guild Enforcer gets plus two plus one and has death touch. So it's sort of like a flash groundbound Delver. It's a one mana three, two. <laughs> That's what everyone wants to play. Yeah, exactly. But the <laughs> thing that is really interesting about this deck is that it was super enabled in that old kind of like Grixis control version deck that uh aspiring spike did maybe six months ago now that uh was basically like a how many cards are in your opponent's graveyard kind of control deck this is like a how many cards are in your opponent's graveyard uh delver deck tempo deck it was even running vantress gargoyle as a two mana five four flyer vantress gargoyle is from eldraine it can't attack unless defending player has seven or more cards in their graveyard for a five four flyer um it had, of course, it had uh, Thought Scour, Four Drown in the Lock, a single into the story. So it's basically this kind of like semi-mill Delver deck that seemed very fun and cool. And, you know, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll uh, fire it off in a league just for laugh sometime over the next couple of days. But really cool deck. Roger Steady was the name of the, uh, the player who had it in the challenge. So in an earlier challenge, Sodek... On Dredge, of course, came in third. And he was playing Dredge with four Silver Smote Ghoul. So we did not talk about this card in our previews. Whoops. Completely overlooked this card. It's being run in a number of decks, as we'll talk about later this episode. Um, what Silver Smote Ghoul is, is a two and a black for a three one, a zombie vampire. At the beginning of your end step, if you gained three or more life this turn, return Silver Smart Ghoul from the graveyard to the to your battlefield tapped. What does that go with? Name one card that enables this. So you're missing an important piece of text too that I forgot to mention. One in the black, sacrifice the ghoul, draw a card. So I didn't even think this was relevant. I completely overlooked it. <laughs> um, you trigger this with Creeping Chill, okay? And Sodek apparently thought this was worth cutting all of the blood ghasts 
from his deck and ran four of these instead. It's funny to me because the chatter I found about this card after the fact, people were talking about cutting literally every other creature card from the deck besides Bloodgast. And so it just goes, nope, don't need it. I've got the Silver Smoke Ghoul because here's what happens. Worth noting that Sodak is also running Ox of Agonis as the three of over yeah. Bloodgast as well. Yes. But so when this triggers, you can bring back any prize amalgams in the graveyard and you can get an instant speed dredge if you need it after this card's on the battlefield, which is very clutch. Um, an important thing to note is it doesn't trigger if Creeping Chill. Uh, the tri- creeping chill triggers happen on your opponent's turn, which can happen with like Merchant of the Veil or Shriekhorn activations. That's certainly worth considering as a risk, but it's certainly worth testing. I'm surprised to see Dredge get another new toy. And even if I slash we completely overlooked it in our spoiler episodes. Um, but yeah, apparently this is just a, a, this is worth running. I did not, I can't, I just can't imagine that only three creeping chills enough to really enable this, but I get, you do trigger creeping chill quite a few times when you play dredge. So as dredge players and dredge opponents know, always, they always do it double to me. It feels like so worth mentioning that this card also showed up a couple of times in pioneer leagues in the five O's mm-hmm. in a couple of different builds that are sort of dredge like, but also yeah. at least one that I feel like is maybe not, dredge-like and it's really more kind of just graveyard synergistic um the the deal with these is that these decks one of them was run by a player called alex fiero and the other one was a person called pig norton uh one of them was sort <laughs> of think like that's a, ed norton's account it totally occurred to me that it could be his like secret magic addiction that would and, be like death to snoopy yeah that would be his his magic online name death to snoopy hmm that's no, a great snoopy. death to, is it oh man I know the movie you're talking about. Great movie directed by Danny DeVito. Oh, Death is Smoochie. Smoochie, yes. thank you. I also I also hate Snoopy, so sorry. sorry. These two decks I thought were really cool in that they both seem to use the power of Seder Wayfinder, Stitcher Supplier, and Grizzly Salvage as the core of graveyard-enabled decks in Pioneer. And one of them, very dredgy, got your prized amalgams, things like that, because they both have prized amalgams. But the other one kind of ladders all the way up to Uro as far as being able to grind a good amount. So Shane, what did you think about these lists? And so you're, you're kind of the graveyard men here. I mean, the, the dredge list dredge that Alex Fierro ran, like you said, is pretty similar to old lists. And what this player is doing is of course they have creeping chill in this deck, but they have added abundant maw, which is an eight mana six, four with a merge six and a black that pr- basically provides like a lightning helix effect on ETB mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. why not? Eldrazi can do anything they want. Um, to get the, the trigger off for Silver Smoke Ghoul. Uh, the Pig Norton deck, like you said, is, is, is similar, but it capitalizes on... So like it doesn't have to run red, right? Like Modern Dredge does. And so it's able to play Uro, which is a busted magic card, which also yeah. triggers Ghoul along with the chills. So this is just like a Golgari graveyard deck splashing blue, primarily for Uro, and that gives you four more pieces of redundancy. This is a lot better than Abundant Maw, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and and that card is just definitely stronger. This deck seems stronger just due to the card quality in it. So yeah, get your ghouls if you're into graveyard strategies. Yeah, and guess H- what? Huge miss. One, yeah, huge. I, th- I think it's one of those things that we were kind of like, ah, it seems interesting, but then we just never got around to it. I will say, I saw Sodek tweeting today about playing 
Dredge and Modern again and playing Mardu Dredge. And the question was, mm. uh, were they playing Lightning Helix or were they playing Smiting Helix? I don't know. I guess probably Smiting Helix because of the dredging. But um, yeah, another thing to keep an eye on is that there might be additional builds coming for this. Guys, I played another blue-red deck. No way. You didn't? Did it have Blood Moon in it? In the sideboard. Okay. I played a Blue Moon-ish deck in Modern that basically got Friend of the Show, the Pen Sword, out of retirement. And it initially was a list that uh, the streamer Squaw Chief came up with. And it was kind of a unique spin on Blue Moon because it was running Riel the Everwise, which is that Elob... Three drop O three that uh, its power is equal to the number of instant sorceries in your graveyard, and then every time you discard a card, you draw that card. So Squat Chief's take was playing that with four Thought Scour, like three Royal Scions, and two Teferi four mana Teferi Time Bandit Master of Time. That's the one Tefori, yeah. and I I didn't get to do a full league. My sample size is incredibly small. I was just kind of curious because it looked fun and cute. And it was exactly that. I had so much more fun playing this in modern than either of the elf decks. <laughs> and, and like to me, I think it was a worthy experiment just to kind of get a sense of how Tefori plays. And I will say like it, the play pattern was exactly what Dave kind of posited on the spoiler app. Whereas you put him down, you take him up to loot. And then on opponent's turn, you kind of threaten to phase. And if they don't have a creature for you to phase, then you get to keep looting. And then you just run Riel because in a way, I think the reason you play him and, and Royal Scions in this deck really is to make Riel better and to make Riel a better threat and to keep drawing you more cards so that the looting actually gets you up a card. It's not card neutral. You're still doing yeah. some amount of filtering. Yeah, it's a pretty wild synergy with Riel if you look at it that way. If looting is fine on its own and then uh, discarding to draw two is kind of broken, then then Riel gets you a long way there. Yeah, I, I just thought it was cool. I don't know. I, I can see this maybe taking off as like another way to play blue-red. It made Riel look kind of promising. It made Thought Scour seem really good for like an instant speed deck. A blue-based instant speed matters deck in modern. Like we were still playing Thing in the Ice. Having instant speed ways to trigger Thing in the Ice was nice. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's move over to talk about a couple of additional uh, Pioneer lists that that we saw. Uh, in Pioneer, one that I saw was a blue-red. Uh, let's not blue-red. Stan, you got me have blue-red on the mind. It's the two best colors, really. Yeah, they, I mean, totally agree. Uh, so uh, I saw maybe a little bit of an entry into data in the great spirit debate of 2020, which is I saw a, uh, five Oh list of blue white spirits with two Shacklegeist in the main deck, um, and four lofty denials as the mm -hmm. only piece of interaction in the main deck. So no collected company just running counter spells and a bunch of good spirits. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, it's, they're not running Shacklegeist instead of Nebelgast Herald. They seem to be running it over to Selfless Spirits, basically, and um, seemed really cool. Um, if Lofty Denial is good in Pioneer, I think, like we said, there's a good, um, you know, Pioneer needs good counterspells, and so having a deck where that fits is, is promising. 
But Shackle Guys, to me, I think was looking good. You know, Todd Anderson wrote an article last week calling it an opposition effect. And I think that's uh, that's a good analog. And hopefully it's good enough to stick for a bit. I also like these two Rally of Wings oh, in yeah. the main yeah. deck. A two-mana Anthem that you play at instant speed. Untap all creatures you control. Creatures you control with flying get plus two, plus two until end of turn. Is this is this like the cheapest Anthem effect? It's just like a weird... Uh, no, I mean, a lot of them are two mana, but they can't be played at instant speed. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just like a board pump. It's like it's not like an enchantment that exists forever. So it's just kind of like a really sick combat trick. But cool card. I think it's good to have that it uh, found a home. Yeah, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Perfect. Uh, the next deck I wanted to talk about really quick, or the next card I wanted to talk about quickly, is See the Truth. Believe it or not, that card that is the bad sleight of hand into a flashbackable uh ancestral recall basically is starting to see some play in a couple of places one place i saw it as a spicy two of is in lotus breach in pioneer which makes some sense the other thing is right before i got on to record i lost to a is it phoenix deck in modern playing for see the truths it's back the truth is back yeah don't know what they were thinking they never got to cast one back at me i assume that they had uh, Snapcaster Mage in their deck in addition to uh, Thing in the Ice, but I just pretty much died to Thing in the Ice. But keep an eye on it. Another card that we're seeing showing up as like a one and two of is Eliminate and Stand and Dave. And I mean, I wasn't low on it, but Stand and Dave were pretty high in this card. Mono Black Aggro, Mono Black Vampires, Demir Inverter, kind of the decks you expect to be playing effect like this are running it. Um, it's our new instant, one in the black, destroy target creature or planeswalker with CMC three or less. Great card. I mean, especially an inverter where one in the black is just a such a better cost than the hero's downfall, uh, one black black. And so it's just it's a shoe-in for that deck. It can they run it, of course, to protect against like opposing planeswalkers like Narset and Gideon of the Trials, and then offers legitimate interaction against creature decks. Um, I mean, a lot of times against creature decks, they're paying for their uh, hero's downfall effect to get rid of a creature and either they're at mana parity or behind. And uh, Ben Friedman mentioned like this allows them to double spell a lot more frequently, which is always something you want to be doing. So I think when decks can't or don't want to be bleeding into other colors for something like Abrupt Decay, this is just a new powerful option. There you go. All right, we got a couple minutes left. So Shane, I'm going to hand it back to you to talk about the deck that has no M21 cards in it, but plug it. Boro Cycling and Pioneer. Uh, Luripur, 5-0 League with this Boro Cycling deck. It just capitalizes on all these new cheap cycling cards from iLob and the power of the cycling cards and cycling matter, matters cards in the Amicut block to create Hollow One Returns. Yes. So nearly every card in this deck cycles or has cycling payoffs, and the deck uh, itself looks like it just can really beat down hard while also enabling all those annoying cycling triggers. Like if you've been playing standard recently on Arena, you just finish the opponent off with the your, your go-wide board or a huge Zenith Flare. And what I, what I like about it is that none of these cards seem like they suck by themselves. They all can provide value. Like there's some better payoffs than others here, but like it's a really flexible looking deck. Like you can gain life with certain creatures. You can deal damage with certain creatures. You can go wide. You can go tall. You can remove creatures. You can tap creatures down. And then you just finish them off with like this giant cycle fireball. 
and close the game out. So I don't know if this is a brand new deck, but it's the first I've seen this particular build and it seems exciting and fun to play with and annoying to play against. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, this is one, this is one I'm going to test out. All right. The last note I have is to control Stan a little bit and say, I did see sublime epiphany in a 14th place deck in the pioneer challenge, blue, green wilderness wreck three sublime epiphany. Amazing. And three gear hulks to be able to recast it out of your graveyard. So, you know, make a copy of your grave, your uh, gear hulk, cast it again, make a copy of your gear hulk, cast it again. Just keep going. Well, doesn't it exile after the gear hulk casts it? Uh, yes. So maybe you only get to do it twice, but still that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that that is cool. How often do you think people are getting the counter activated or triggered ability? I have no idea. Oh, counter. I, I don't know, but I did see someone with a screenshot of all five check marks checked on the Moto interface. So somebody did it. I don't remember who it was, but that achievement has been unlocked. So I'll have to dream another dream. Okay. Can I close out the episode the same way we started this episode with please chatting about Goblin Snoop? So I, I played a Goblin Snoop deck in Pioneer as well, and I have a lot less to say than I did about the modern version. But this is a deck that went 3-2 in a prelim last week, and it's it's mono-red goblins. And this is not a combo deck. This is Sly. If you're familiar with the Sly classic red deck win strategy, try to just like curve out with aggressive creatures. Um, and in this role, because Pioneer doesn't have like a lot of goblins that have activated abilities for him to use it basically just is an experimental a two-man experimental frenzy uh though i I gotta say the real mvp for me in my minimal testing was subira tulzidi caravaner uh the three mana m21 legendary human two three haste that's the one that you pay one and another target creature with power two or less can't be blocked and then it also has one in red tap discard your hand and until end of turn whenever a creature you control with power two or less deals combat damage to a player draw a card in a super low to the ground deck like this goblin slide thing subira was just reloading my hand over and over and over again and if i let's say i didn't necessarily have like the mana to tap it or maybe like i wanted to attack with her that one caught like that one man another target creature becomes un- unblockable this turn was really cool with like a um that one mana goblin was it the foundry street denizen because it grows and i was able to get into these situations where i would make foundry street denizen unblockable and then start playing goblins so it ended up swinging for like three to five unblockable damage I mean, I played it enough to actually have a verdict, which is that this is a cool new aggro deck in Pioneer, but that kind of like depends on how good aggro is in Pioneer. I'm not sure if it's necessarily better than something like in Soul. And I didn't necessarily feel that Goldfish is fast enough to beat Inverter, but at least we have like another go wide creature aggressive strategy that, uh, you know, player snoops in every format. There you go. All right. So there's your giant takes on many many new decks or tweaked decks or new cards from m21 in this new nascent format across modern and pioneer this was a fun one but now it's time to really wrap it up if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple podcasts please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer You can tweet us 
at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. We're joining it. Any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. Give us a dollar. You can chat with us all day while we try to look busy at work. Find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. Really easy to look busy at work for those of us who are still working from home. Just have to find a way to book that time on our timesheets. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and visit Auntie's Hobble! Hey, just to throw out movie podcast to people, um, Blank Check is a good movie podcast I've been listening to lately, and they're threatening to do a series of episodes on the movies directed by Danny DeVito soon. Don't threaten me with a good time, David. I mean, their whole thing is that they will do a series on directors who got a chance to make whatever movie they wanted. They're in the middle of doing Nora Ephron right now. They're great. Uh, it's a good podcast. Anyway. Death of Smoochie came up recently on their pod, which is the only reason I mentioned it. Tanner, you can cut that. Um, <clears throat> so...